Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. This show is produced by the Powell Group, the leading business consulting firm in the gaming industry. Visit us online at IndieGame.Business to learn about our online digital events. We have some amazing sessions with people in the gaming industry, and you can participate for free and purchase inexpensive passes to our industry-leading business-to-business system. Now, here we go, Indie Game Business. My name is Steve Bromley. I am a user researcher working in games. Today, I'm really excited to talk to you all about better playtesting. The teams who have don't have a huge amount of money, don't have a huge amount of time, but still want to do the best playtesting they possibly can, I, I would like to go through with that with you for the next hour. So a little bit about me and my background. I've worked in the games industry for just over a decade now. Um, as a user researcher or a UX researcher working in games. I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with user researchers, but they run structured playtests to try and get reliable and rigorous information from, from players using methods such as usability testing or surveys or observation of players playing to work out what's fun, what do players understand, what the players um, can't do, and from that improve our games. For the first five years of my career, I did that with PlayStation in their European team, working on titles such as Horizon, um, SingStar, many smaller games as well. What's really nice about PlayStation is because they are a publisher, they publish both through big titles that everyone's heard of, but also through their Xdev program, work with very small teams. And so you get exposed to a whole bunch of different scenarios, lots of different needs from playtesting, and work out how to fit that with different teams. For the last five years, I've been working with game studios of all different sizes to help them run playtests and also set up user research as part of how they're running their, their game development process so that they're getting regular feedback from players as they design. That's from big studios, big AAA studios, down to little indie teams of, of just one developer or a couple of developers working out how they can improve playtesting in, in their process. I'm very enthusiastic about playtesting and user research and, and games UX. I established the, the mentoring scheme with the IGDA to help people do this as a full-time career and learn how to become games user researchers if that's what they want to do. And a lot of that I rolled up into my first book called How to Be a Games User Researcher, which a lot of those lessons for people who want to do this as a full-time career. Now, that's not really what we're talking about today. What we're talking about today is for people who can't do user research full-time it's just a small part of, of what they're doing and a lot of that i brought up in, in a product i've called the playtest kits which i won't talk about now but will become relevant later but onto onto the idea of playtesting and onto the value of what we're talking about today so i, th I think all game developers recognize there is a huge amount of value in iteration and in playtesting by regularly putting what we're making in front of players and making sure they understand it and can use it, we, we work out where are the fun bits and we can optimize them. We can solve 
more boring businessy challenges like how do we stop losing players and how do we improve retention and throughout all the places i run i've spent over twenty-five thousand hours with with players i've seen that the value of iteration putting your ideas in front of players learning what's working what's not working is tremendously valuable for improving the quality of your game and sticking you on the red line here rather than the blue line but that's all, all well and good for me to say as a full-time user researcher in real life that's that's not practical for for most game teams this idea of doing full user research with a proper process takes a whole bunch of time it, it can be a full-time role and it takes a whole bunch of money both actual financial money giving players money for taking part in playtests is quite common in the industry but also just your time and your money for you the opportunity of stuff you could be doing using your time and your money elsewhere for is something that a lot of indie teams and a lot of the smaller teams I, I talk to just don't have. And I think that's a really interesting problem, one that I, I wanted to help solve. So I spent a lot of the last two years just talking to indie game devs, talking to sm small game dev teams, all the people who can't afford or don't want to, to spend all their time running full play tests all the time as a full-time job but just have to do occasional playtests as part of what they're doing. That included solo developers, designers, producers, community managers, QA people, UX designers, just people who have to do, do playtests as part of their role rather than a full-time thing. And from them, I heard what parts were difficult, one of the challenging bits of playtesting and what's really hard to do. And I hope that we can bring some of the, the best practice from the user research industry in doing this full-time to make playtesting more practical for, for normal developers. From all of that, I heard what was hard about playtesting. I, I think there are some easy to implement changes to how teams are currently running their playtests that incorporate that best practice from UX and, and user research. Some of the topics we're gonna to talk about include, what are the easiest ways of finding people to take part in a playtest? What do I do with all this playtest data that we've gathered? And how do we work out what are the most important times to playtest and what are the most important things to playtest? As, as we all know, it's very hard to find the time and the money to do this properly. And so everything we talk about today should be as cheap as possible, as, as um, not a big commitment on your time as possible, and just make it really practical for most indie game developers to incorporate into their playtesting practice. And we're gonna frame all of this around the playtest process. Um, I'll share some links where you can get copies of, of a lot of the stuff we're looking at today after, so don't worry about writing it all down. But if you're doing playtesting as a full-time user research thing, it's quite likely you'd go through some sort of playtest process like this. First, a stage of planning where you're working out what do we want to learn about, about our tests, uh, about our game rather, look at the build and what's practical with the build we have, get everyone on the team engaged with the test and thinking about what they want to learn and so everyone's ready to take feedback from players. There's a whole bunch of prep stuff where you work out what's the right methods, you go and find the playtesters and get them to sign NDAs and, and do consent. You prepare your build and design the playtest study. Actually, what are the questions we're going to ask players and how we're going to get feedback from our players. There's then some data collection where you're actually getting people to play your games and you're getting feedback from players. And then there's an analysis step where you're taking all this raw data, looking at it and working out what are the conclusions and what are the actions that I need to be taking as a game developer 
with the, this data I've collected. And really, that can be quite a long process if you're doing it, doing it uh, as a full-time thing. Today, we're going to focus on just some of the most difficult parts for indie game developers and the bits where it's most difficult if you don't have a huge amount of time or effort to put to this process. We're going to talk about how do you find high-quality playtesters, how do you work out the right time to playtest, when you have people doing playtests, how do you make the most of your players' time, what do you do with all that raw data you get back from your playtests, and how do you turn that raw data into an act action, a thing that we're going to, to make different about the game or a decision about the game, how do you decide what to do next reliably? And so actually on the, pro the process, that falls in, in these sections. Deciding the focus of your playtest, picking the right research methods, recruiting your playtesters, analyzing the raw data, and sharing those conclusions with your game team. But first of all, we're going to look at finding playtesters um, for reasons that will become clear soon. As I mentioned, I spent a lot of the last two years talking to game developers about how they do playtesting currently and their current approach and why they use that approach. And as you can imagine, there are some common ways in which people are finding playtesters currently. Some of the, the themes that came up all the time is people were asking their friends or their family, getting feedback from their mum about whether they liked the game or not. If they had some sort of link with a, a game dev course, they might ask other university students or, or a nearby university course about to, to play the test again and, and give feedback. Um, or if they had a community, they were lucky enough to have a community already, they might be asking their community to play test the game and give feedback. Now, I can understand why teams do that. All of these are, are based on convenience. They are the easier type of people to get part, get hold of when you're running your playtest. But putting a, a professional eye on this, you can see that there are some compromises to, to the data you're going to get back from these sessions. These people are all not like your real players. Your real players are the people that you're going to want to buy your game eventually and who are going to realistically play your game, stream your game, be the type, of, be a real genuine player of your game. All those people we just talked about, or they have some limitations that make them not exactly the right type of people. For one thing, their prior knowledge is different. If you're asking your your mum to give feedback on your game, but she's never played a game of this genre before, she's never played an RTS game before, her her knowledge that she's going to have going in isn't going to be appropriate, and because of that, her feedback will be different. On, on the other hand, your fans will be much more excited, much more engaged, much more interested than the average player. And again, that's going to affect their opinions, their behavior, and ultimately not make them representative of a typical player who you want to, to take part in a game. All this adds up to is their feedback is going to be different. It's not going to be the real feedback that your real players would give if they were playing the game. And, and that's a problem for us, right? If we're making decisions based on faulty data, the our decisions are going to be wrong and our decisions will be harder to, to make than they would be otherwise. And so that's the first challenge I wanted to address in, in the talk today. How do we improve the quality of playtesters we're using by creating a pool of reliable and, and representative playtesters that we can call upon for playtests whenever we need them? And I'm going to go through a process for doing that. I, at the end, I know I'm going to go through a lot of detail here. There'll be a link at the end also for a written version of this actual process and, and how, to, how to do this, but I wanted to introduce it now. 
The steps we're going to go through are, first of all, how do you define your target player? Work out who is a realistic player that we're aiming this game at. We need to create a place where we can keep them, so we do have a pool of playtesters we can call upon. Give them a reason for taking part in the playtest, and, and then working out where do we actually find these players? Where are they hanging out currently, and, and where can I get hold of them so that I can actually invite them to my pool of playtesters? And then you put all those steps together, as, as we'll see, into making a compelling offer that will want people to take want to take part in your playtest. So first of all, defining your target player. As I've mentioned a few times, your, your real players aren't going to be university game dev students. They aren't going to be uh, your family or your friends. They are going to be people who will buy your game. Because of that, we know, we know a couple of things about them. We know they are the type of person who will buy your game. And, and because of that, we know probably what genre of game they play. We might be able to say our game is like these other titles so that uh, we know if our game is is a clone of um, of a different game or a spin on an existing game, we'll know they'll probably play other games like this already. And we also know what they buy. If I'm making an indie game on, on iOS, I know they buy games from the Apple Store. If I'm uh, selling it on itch.io, I know they buy games from itch.io. Those are some things I know about my players. From that, you can start to create a, a definition of what your players are like and, and um, what we know about them. We we'll, can think about what other games they play, so other games that are similar to ours or in the same genre or have a similar aesthetic or style. We can start to, we know where they're buying games and we start to make some assumptions about how often they play games, how often they buy games, those type of behaviors. Now, when we start off, this is going to be a bit made up. Uh, we might have a, a reasonably confident idea about what other games they play and where they're buying games, but a lot of these other behaviours, we're just going to be guessing. At this stage, that's okay. As we start to run playtests, and as playtesting becomes easier to do on, on an iterative cycle, we will start to learn more about our players as we go, and we'll be able to refine this definition of our players. I'll share at the end also a template that we can use to, to capture that information so that you have an idea of, you have a way to capture your understanding of who your players are. The goal of this first step is to come up with a first idea about who you think is going to buy your game. A trap that I see teams falling into is defining that based on demographics. Instead of focusing on their, their behaviour, their genuine behaviour, which is a repeatable thing, if you focus too much on, on their age or their gender or where, where in the world they live, you can fall into traps of, of saying, okay, I think my player is about 16-year-olds, I, I think they might be male, I think they might be based in the USA, and, and you very quickly fall into stereotypes. As, as a user researcher, we know that behaviour is a lot easier as, as a way of defining players to make it repeatable. And so focusing on behaviour like what do they play and what do they buy will make a stronger definition of your player. The exception to this is kids' games. If your game is for children, obviously defining your player as a child makes sense. Now, as I mentioned, I'll share a template for this at the end, but that first step was defining your target player. Who do you think will be buying your game? The next step of creating this pool of processes is how do we make a place to keep them? Once we find them in a later step, where are we gonna put them and what are we gonna do with them? 
For this, the teams I've worked with had a lot of success by using a mailing list. Using something like MailChimp or ConvertKit are, are both free until you hit a certain number of, of people signed up. And they're a very reliable way of getting hold of your players. You know that if you send an email out to your mailing list, most people on your mailing list are going to receive it, about half might open it, and that's a pretty good return rate, especially if you compare it to other ways that teams sometimes want to do this, like getting them to follow you on Twitter or getting them to follow you on Instagram. When you send out a tweet or, or a Facebook post for teams who do this on Facebook, not everyone who follows you will see it because of the algorithm it, making choices about what they show the content to. And anyone who's familiar with marketing indie games knows this. A, a, a very minimal number of the people who follow you will actually see your post. Whereas if you're using a mailing list to gather all the people who want to take part in playtests, you know there's a pretty good chance they're going to see it because it will be in their inbox. <clears throat> so the second step was just set up a MailChimp or set up a, a ConvertKit account so that you can start gathering email addresses when we get to that step. Third thing to think about is how do we convince people to actually take part in our tests? And, and this is the idea of an incentive. If you don't offer an incentive, a, a thing to convince people to take part in your play tests, that's going to strongly bias the type of people who take part in, in, in your play test. You'll start to fall back into only the people who are motivated because they know you will bother to do this. And that can include, again, your friends, your family, game dev students who are trying to learn about the game development uh, experience or your existing community will take part, but an average player won't. Now, if you are lucky enough to have budgets, this is one of the ways that teams do decide to spend their budget. If you offer people $10 to take part in your playtest, they're a lot more likely to take part in your playtest than they would otherwise. But again, for most indie teams, that isn't practical. Having $10 per person, just trying to see five or six players can cost $50 or $60. And I know that's money that teams will usually want to spend on better artwork or a, a, um, some sort of advertising as opposed to spending it on playtests. Um, in that case, there are other things that you have that have value that players might be interested in. Uh, a common one is the idea of recognition, so giving players credits in the game giving players a special role in the Discord if, if they're members of your Discord, giving players recognition of, that their participation in the playtest has value is one of the things you can offer. A small way of doing that is after you run a playtest, emailing everyone who took part in the playtest, say thank you, and, and giving some idea about the changes that you're making as a result of playtests makes it feel more worthwhile to take part in playtests. Another thing I've worked seen work really well with indie game dev teams is being able to offer other games. If you partner up with similar studios who are also working on games and, and share keys for your games, you can offer keys from other game developers' games to take part in your playtests and reciprocate by giving them keys for your games if they take part in your playtests. By creating a network of, of game developers who are interested in encouraging playtesting and happy to share keys between uh, their their games to organize playtests. You both create better links with other game dev studios, which is really valuable for networking. But also, you can offer something that has value to take part in the playtests. You can offer a key to either, not even your game, a game from another studio, which has value. 
regardless of what you pick and, and what's possible for you, you do need to be thinking about what is the incentive we can offer. No one will give up their time to take part in a playtest if you, if you can't offer anything. And so even if it is just some recognition by saying this is very valuable and we'll give you a thank you credit in the game, that can make a huge difference to the number of people who sign up to take part in your playtests. Now perhaps the hardest step. We've got an idea of who we want to, to take part in our playtests. We've thought about what it is we want to, to give them. We've got a place to keep them once they've turned up. But now we need to go out into the world and find these players. Again, we've got a head start because we have an idea about what other games we've played. As you remember, in the earlier step when we're talking about the target game player, um, we thought about what other games do they play? What other games out there should they be playing? That can give you a way to find their existing communities. If you go to Google and type in that competitor game and then some other keywords like help or forum or question or community or support, you start to surface other places where people are talking about games, whether that's other Reddit forums, whether that's specific forums for those games, whether it's discourse for those forums, you start discourse for those games you start to find where people are talking about competitor games. And as we know, if they like these competitor games, they're the type of person that you want to convince to take part in your playtest. So by doing a, just starting on Google and searching for these types of games, you can start to turn up areas where people are, are talking about these games. What I really like about some of these keywords, the ones about help or, or support or, or question, is the type of people who are on, on a Reddit forum asking for help are likely to be typical players. They're not that super hardcore, aces every game, perfect player type person who, who isn't gonna be representative of the majority of your players. They are more likely to be an average typical player because they're asking for help. They're, they're not a, a hardcore player, they're an average player. And again, that's really useful to get hold of for for example, balancing the difficulty of your game. You want to find people who aren't those super hardcore players to do that reliably. It's not just other games though that where you can find communities. If, if your game has a, a USP, a unique selling point, you can think about what is special about your game that might be to convince where people who might be interested in your game are hanging out. For example, if your game is, is about music, you might be to find places where people are talking about music online and, and they might play a music-based game. If your game features dinosaurs, you might be able to find places where people are talking about dinosaurs. Um, I saw a really nice case study a little while ago about a game around um, where the characters were sloths, those um, mammals that hang in trees, and they got great responses to their playtest by going to sloth forums to go and find the, the uh, potential players. But thinking about what other communities beyond just games might be another way of finding potential people to pay, take part in playtests. Of course, there are some, some traditional ways that teams use as well. Um, as well as your specific communities, there are, for example, on Reddit, online work for, for hire communities where, where people are just offering their time for money. And as long as you're screening them, checking that they do match your, your ideal player base because they do play similar games, this is the type of place you might to ask. Go to offline meeting places, again, just as normal people doing normal things, whether that's a coffee shop, the university campus, 
I mentioned earlier about the Game Dev University courses. The reason I, I say watch out for those is because obviously everyone doing it is an aspiring game developer, and they often try and give critical peer feedback as a game developer, which is, is lovely and can be very useful, but a, a peer game developer feedback is different from a genuine player player's experience and what a genuine player would say. And so keeping that, that type of feedback separate is very valuable. And that's very similar as well on some communities on Reddit. You might be familiar with the r slash playtesting or r slash playtesters um, forums on Reddit. I think it's also r slash roast my game. Here, there are places who offer to, to play your game and, and give feedback, which again, sounds great. But in my experience, a lot of them, the people on those forums and the most active people are other game developers. Again, really helpful to get feedback from other game developers on your game and learn from that. But just be clear, you're not getting a real player's experience from another game developer. They're coming at it with a professional impression and a professional eye, which would be different from, from what you'll learn from a player. <clears throat> you can use that player definition we talked about earlier to create what's called a screener. And that's a questionnaire that players can fill out to check whether they're the right type of player. It can ask them what genres they play, how often they play, what types of, what other games they play. And from that, you can check that they are the right type of player. And, and one of the things you can do is use this before you give them the link to actually sign up to your mailing list so that only the people who have qualified who, who get through your screener sign up to your mailing list. Now bringing this all together. So what at this point we've thought about who are our target audience? Where are we going to keep them on our mailing list? We've thought about what we can offer them. And we've thought about where are we actually going to go and find them to invite them to take part in a playtest. You can put all of that together to craft an, uh, an offer, a thing that we can uh, we can tell people to invite them to take part in playtests. Writing a post which says, hey, what are the benefits of taking part in the playtest? What are we offering in the incentive? what's compelling about your game, why should they bother to take part in the playtest, and also giving an idea of what's expected from them, what, what sort of commitment is taking part in the playtest, will convince people to take part. And again, at the end of this, there's a, a free template for uh, for this, this post so that you know that you're writing the best possible pitch for taking part in the playtest and convincing as many people as possible to take part in your playtest. When it comes to actually scheduling, that can be a bit of a hassle as well. Um, there are tools like Calendly, which you might be familiar with, where you can just create slots and, and people can fill out, pick their own availability from that slot, which can make take, uh, doing the, the actual scheduling of playtests a lot easier. They also can set up screen sharing, like an, an invite link so they can join you remotely. It can send the calendar invites so they encourage them to turn up. And all of that together, can be a way to actually convince people, to make it easy for people to commit to taking part in the playtest. Now, I know I've talked a huge amount about recruiting play, players, and that's only a small part of, of the playtesting process. But because it is a reasonably complicated process, if, if you are lucky enough to have any budget, this is often the bit that teams decide to outsource. And there are participant recruitment companies out there who will just take all that hassle off you. But I know realistically for many game studios, that's not an option. This is really important to take seriously though. 
if you aren't finding the right players, if you aren't finding the right people to take part in your playtests, even I understand it takes a huge amount of time, all the rest of playtesting becomes pointless. You're getting feedback from the wrong type of players. You're making the wrong decisions because you haven't got the right type of players. This does take a bunch, uh, a bit of time and a thought to do properly. But I think with the process I've talked about, you can create a, a pool of playtesters that you can call upon whenever you need them, which means that although it takes maybe half a day to set up for the first time, after that, you can just keep calling on those playtesters whenever you need them. So it takes no time at all to run future playtests. <clears throat> so the next topic I want to talk about was finding the right time to playtest. And again, as you remember, I was having conversations with indie game developers and small teams about playtesting and hearing why people were putting off playtesting. Some of the most common ones were, hey, I don't think it's ready, or we just did a playtest, or, or what's the point because the final graphics aren't in, or the tutorial's not in, or just assuming that players will understand it. And it's really easy to put off playtesting, but it's a bit of a trap as well. Um, delaying playtests means that actually because we're always moving forward, game development is very time intensive and hectic, our focus is moving forward. And if we don't playtest it now, we'll probably never come back and playtest these bits. And by the time we do come back and playtest it, decisions will be baked in. It will be impossible to make changes because we, we've built on, the, on those systems already. And it just becomes impractical to make changes. All of this adds up to reducing the amount of iteration that we get to do. Rather than being on that red line where we're continually iterating and improving the quality of our game, we're closer to that blue line where, where we'll run one or two playtests but not be able to uh, actually impact, have a huge impact from them. <clears throat> and, and it's a bit pointless. You're eventually going to learn that there are problems with your game. You get, you're going to hear them in the Steam reviews. You're going to hear them in, if you're lucky enough to get critical reviews. You'll hear them in the critical reviews. And so isn't it better to get that type of feedback earlier when we're still able to, to do something about it? And that's the second challenge I want to address today. How do we work out what are the most important things to playtest and how do we get them ready for playtesting as early as possible? Now, the mindset that I promote with the teams I work with is thinking about every game design decision as a hypothesis. Whenever we make a choice about the game, such as this game has regenerative health or um, this enemy has a weak spot in their chest, there's a hypothesis, there's probably more than one hypothesis behind that. got to check out our discord at discord.gg slash indie game business it's an amazing community of over 3500 other industry experts we've got developers publishers marketing and pr firms investors so so many so many it's safe and supportive place to network and to talk to experts you can learn more about the business of games or you can share what you know with others we have exclusive workshops on perfecting your pitch deck finding a publisher and more remember it's discord.gg slash indie game business
have to recognise that, okay, we think players will understand what their current health is and they'll understand how they're getting more health, or we think that players will notice there's a weak spot and understand what they're meant to do with the weak spot. Every time you make a game design decision, uh, whether it's about the art, whether it's about design, whether it's about level design, there is a hypothesis behind that and, and we need to recognise that. From that, you can start to articulate your hypothesis, hypotheses. You can say, okay, I believe players will do this because of that. For example, I believe players will know what their health is because the UI cues will be sufficient to, to they know when they're about to die. Or I believe players will notice and be able to hit the weak spot because we made it flash red. And when you start to articulate your your game design decisions as hypotheses like that, you can start to rank them as well by risk, by asking yourself some questions like, is this a core part of the experience that absolutely has to work, or is it something that it doesn't matter if it works or not? Is it something that we're able to make changes to, or is it baked in that even if we learn their problems, we're going to be stuck with them? And also just, I is it a decision you're confident with? Obviously, uh, everyone who makes games is an expert in their field. They're, might have made games before or might have a huge amount of experience and, and domain expertise. And so there's some things that they just know will work. And, and if so, that's less important to play test if you just know it's going to work. And what I recommend for teams is taking each of their decisions and asking themselves these three questions so they can rank how important it is to play test each feature or each idea or each decision they've made about their game. That type of thing does fit into project management tools. If you're tracking a development by Trello or tracking it by Jira, you can start to use that to, to track what's the status of the things we're working on, add a, a stage where we assess, is it ready for playtesting, and then decide whether to take it forward. We, we talked about one of the barriers is that sometimes things aren't ready because there are other prerequisites um, that we, we need before we can test. For example, the tutorial might not be in, and how do we handle that? Well, if we're just testing each individual hypothesis, that allows you to be very focused with what you're learning, and you can start to ignore everything else that isn't relevant. If the tutorial isn't in, that's fine. You can be the tutorial, you can explain it to players, or you can make a sheet that just tells them what they would have learned at this point. If there are bugs in the game, again, that's cool. You can help players avoid the bugs because you know they're there, and you can help make sure that the bugs don't become a barrier to learn testing the hypothesis. But by identifying your, your objectives as hypotheses, you can be laser focused on what do I absolutely need to learn from this playtest and then ignore all the rest. Um, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. So even though it can't be the perfect playtest because we've had to be the tutorial, because we had to help them with a few bugs, we can still learn something about our hypotheses. And, and really, even just the smallest amount of playtesting makes a huge amount of difference. Just taking a few minutes to put two or three people in front of it, giving them very broad tasks like, hey, play through this section, play this level, play through the first five minutes, watching, just sitting there watching them play, getting them to talk about what they're seeing and not over-explaining or not helping them, just seeing what a natural player experience is like, gives a huge amount of really rich data that gives you confidence about hey, is this game design decision working? Do I need to do any further work on this? Or actually, it looks fine. 
it's, it's okay, we've tested it enough, we can move our attention on elsewhere. By going through this process, you end up with a, a list of the most important things to play test, and you'll have that from as soon as the decision is made. If you're articulating your ideas as hypotheses and going through that process of thinking about, uh, do I need to test this hypothesis or not? You will very quickly be able to work out what do I really need to play test and what can wait till later. The third theme I wanted to talk about was, okay, what do we actually do with players when we have them? And going back to, to those interviews and, and that time I spent with game developers asking about their playtest process, I asked them, how are you currently getting data from your players? Some of the most common ways that people said, oh, I'm capturing data from my players were surveys, being able to put it in front of people and just get them to fill out a survey about what they liked, what they didn't like, or getting them to give, just type their feedback into a Discord channel or type their feedback into a Slack channel. Now, again, I can see why teams do this. It's very convenient. But as, as a user researcher, it immediately throws up in red flags about the type of data you're getting back from this. The problem with all of this data is you're asking players to self-report their experience. You're asking them to write down what they thought or write down what happened, either on Discord or on the survey, and, and tell you what happened. I know from thousands of hours of playtests that if you, when you do that, you're missing a huge amount of the value. There's things that players can't tell you about the game. They can't tell you actually what were they doing in the game. They can't write that down. They can't tell you if, you, if they missed something entirely, they won't be able to tell you, they won't be able to write that down. Um, if, if they didn't understand it, but didn't realize they didn't understand it, they can't explain that. And you also get really shallow feedback that you isn't, doesn't give you enough to go on. And you might, if you're lucky, they might tell you, oh, it took me too long to complete this challenge, but they won't tell you why it took too long and without that information, you won't be able to do something with it. <clears throat> because of that, we need to be very focused on thinking about actually what are we going to do with our, our playtesters when we have them and pick the right playtest method. And once again, if you take your, your game design decisions back to a hypothesis, this makes them a lot more uh, a lot clearer. How do we go about testing it? If we want to know if players can spot something it becomes clear, okay, we can we can usability test that. We can see if, if they've understood it or if they haven't understood it. If we want to know if players think something is fun, we'll recognize, oh, this might be a, a measurement question. We might need to do a survey to see if they think it's fun. Um, when you're, you're thinking about it from a hypothesis-based direction, it becomes a lot easier to spot the methods. And there's a whole, whole bunch of different methods out there. Some of them are, are strong in some areas. Some of them are weak in some areas. So some of them are really good for learning what players actually do. Can they get through a level? Do they know what they're meant to do? Can, can they do this? Some are strong for learning why that happens. Not, so not just something uh, if players fail, but why did they fail? Why, what didn't players understand about the tutorial? And some are good for measuring, like measuring do players like this? Do players think this is overpowered, their, their opinions? There are different methods that are strong or weak for each of these things we want to learn. Some of the, the tools we might call upon as a user researcher include actually watching people live, so um, sh sharing their screen, for example, or bringing them in a room and just watching them play. Pre-recorded observation, where 
a player sends you a video of them playing and you look back at that at the video and there are tools like um playtest cloud or antidote which do this as a, as a service obviously surveys are sometimes appropriate when you want to measure things you might ask them to fill out a survey and give ratings or put things on scale might want to do an interview if you want to understand why and ask some questions about why did they do that or why did they think that or if you set up your game with telemetry or analytics so that it tracks its own behavior again that can be very sensible for some things but the really important point here is picking the method based on what you want to learn from the study rather than based on convenience i find though that can sound very complicated um a lot of a huge amount of value, and if you're just starting out with, is just watch a few people play your game. From even just watching two to three people play through your prototype or your game, you get really deep feedback on, on what they understand and what they don't do. And actually that really deep feedback can be a lot more valuable than getting thousands of people to fill out a survey. Surveys will obviously give you, give you ratings, but the, the detail was very shallow on a survey and not often not enough to go on when you're making game design decisions. So yeah, just watching two, three people will give you tremendous value from your playtests. And, and you don't need a high-tech setup to do this. Just it, uh, plugging in a second monitor if you're doing it in person so that you can watch the second monitor while they play on the laptop is enough. You can use tools like OBS, um, Open Broadcast Software, to, to record as they play you can use a webcam just to record the audio of them talking about it and you ask them questions and you can get a huge amount from that. If you're not using Ops, Windows Game Bar also allows you to both record what's happening on the screen and you record the audio in the room so that you're talking about it. Or if you're not in person with them, actually um, screen sharing and, and meeting tools do a lot of this for you. With Zoom or Google Meet, you can set up a shared meeting you can invite them to play, you can invite them to share their screen, you can ask them questions as they play in, in the quiet bits, and, and you can record on Zoom and Google Meet. And so for a very small amount of money, you can start to gather that type of playtest data. And I think my summary from this section is, make sure you're thinking about what you want to learn from the playtest and using that to pick your method rather than just doing what's convenient. If you want to measure something like ratings about a game then, then a survey is perfect if you want to understand what players are doing just watching them play will will show you what the players do in my game whether that is live or you get them to send you a pre-recorded video or if you want to understand why they did it just ask them doing an interview watching them play and asking questions as as um as they play reveals what's going on in their brain what have they understood and what haven't they understood and again, just gives you all that raw information for your game design decisions. And, and all these methods can be combined. You don't have to just do one. Putting them all together creates very strong um, data. <clears throat> so the fourth thing I wanted to talk about is whenever you run a playtest, you end up with a huge amount of raw data. And again, going back to those challenges that team said they had, that can often be a challenge they say that there's too much data, I don't know what to do with it. And, and regard, depending on the method you pick, you might end up with a whole bunch of behavioral data, what the players do in the game. You might have some survey ratings, you might have some comments, you might have some interview data. You'll have your observations, the things that you saw them, them doing the game. 
And for teams, that can sometimes feel like it takes too long to process. It's really hard to work out what to do with it. And, and that can be a barrier to doing more playtesting. So what I want to talk about next was actually how do we handle that playtest data? First thing to do is uh, when you have that, when you've gathered all that data and, and you're thinking about how to handle it, first thing to do is remember why you ran the playtest. Go back and look at what's the focus of your playtest, what the hypotheses you want to test, what are your research objectives, and then think about what is the focus of your playtest, just to put that top of mind as you're dealing with your data. Then we want to split your data into two types of data based on what it is. Behavior data, what players actually did, and opinion data, what players think about your game. We're going to treat both those types of data differently because they, they need to be handled differently. First of all, behavior data. Behavior data is, is objective data. It's something that actually happened. The player actually went the wrong way. The player actually um, didn't learn how to use a mechanic. The player didn't uh, understand these parts of the game. That's player's behavior. And that's because it's objective, it's the safest thing to take action on. So some examples could be, we, we spotted in the playtest that a player didn't know where to spend their in-game currency because they didn't find the right menu, or we saw players wander the wrong way on this level because they didn't see where the door was. That is objective data that definitely happened in the session. Because it's objective, it's reasonably easy to deal with. First of all, we need to understand why it occurred. So looking back at uh, or reflecting, thinking about what we heard in the interviews and what we saw when people were playing, to understand why did players um, not see the button, sorry, why did players not know where to do their currency? Why did players go the wrong way? What caused that issue? Then we need to work out how to fix it, and we talk a bit about fixes in the last section. And then you want to prioritize how important is this issue? And, and again, similar to, to earlier where we had that matrix, you can ask yourself these questions when you when you look at each individual bit of, of behavioral data to decide whether it's worth doing something about. First of all, asking, is it on what's called here red route, a, a, one of the core parts of the game that players actually have to do? Then asking, is it difficult to overcome? Did, did we need to help players or were they able to overcome that problem? And lastly, asking yourself, is it persistent? After the players hit that issue once, do they know how to overcome it in the future? Or are they always stuck with that same issue again and again? And by asking yourself those questions, you can come up with a priority rating for, for each of the, the behavioural issues you've seen with your game and work out which the ones we need to deal with first. And um, we'll talk about actually taking action in the last section. So that was behaviour data. You're also going to get from your playtest a whole bunch of opinion data, and that can be trickier. Um, and it's where some teams often go wrong with handling playtest data. Some examples of opinion data might be are this enemies annoying because it's hard to beat? Or it'd be great if this game had a shotgun in it. These are players' opinions about the game, which is uh, they're subjective and, and different to that behavioral data. Because of this, we need to take a couple of extra steps when we go through this process. First of all, we need to think about why are players giving that feedback? What happened to them as they, as they played that led to them to decide to say that the game needs a shotgun or say that enemy was too hard. Then you need to decide if that's what you want or not. Some games are meant to be hard. That's the point of the experience. 
and you as a game designer know the experience you're trying to create. If you um, if you want to make a hard game, that's okay. You shouldn't change it just because players are saying it's hard. So doing that extra step to reflect on is this experience I want to create is really important. And, and based on that, decide whether you want to take action or not. Sometimes you might not want to. That might be okay that players think the game's hard. That's what you want to do. And then go through those other steps about deciding the fix and prioritizing the fix. I guess my last message on, on this bit is don't forget that you are the expert. You are a, the expert game developer and the people taking part in your playtests don't have your game development expertise. Because of that, don't just do those things that players say. If players say you should have a shotgun or players say this is too hard, you should make it easier, you don't just action it because the players suggest it. Instead, go through that interpretation and, and thinking about what, what experience you're trying to create, what context you have, and then work out what's the right way to fix the problems that players are reporting, rather than just jumping straight to the fix they're recommending. Find what is the issue that they actually had and use that to decide the fix. Which brings me to my last point today, deciding what to do next. From, from the, those issues we see in playtests, we end up with, with a problem and, and we need to reflect on what is that impact of that problem? What does it cause to players? So for example, if the problem, if there was the issue of players didn't spot the checkpoint signpost because it was hidden on among other things on the level. If we, we think about the impact of that, in this case, players got lost and so never finished the level, we can decide what uh, whether this is worth action or not. We should also be considering multiple solutions. And, and one of the, rather than just jumping to the, the first fix, often the most obvious fix, there's a huge amount of value in going through a structured ideation process of, uh, if you're lucky enough to have a team, thinking individually about fixes, talking to others about the fixes, combining your ideas and coming up with a complete fix to the issue has a huge amount of value. If you um, And again, a thing I can share after, it's a template for running those fix workshops after playtests. You also need to think about how important is it to fix these problems? You need to ask yourself, how hard will it be to fix this? How important is it to, to um, the player that we fix this? Both of those things will come from those previous ideas we talked about and then decide what are the most important things that can go back into our, our backlog of tasks and what can we ignore and, and simply not have to do anything on. My last point in this section about deciding what to do next is after you've run a playtest and, and learned some problems and fixed some problems, that's not really the end. Although we, we've made some fixes, we don't yet know if those fixes have fixed the problem. We don't yet know if there are other issues hidden because of these big problems that we didn't discover in our first playtest, which is partly why I recommend the idea of doing regular small playtests for teams rather than just doing one big playtest. Even if every month you're just seeing two or three players, you create more iteration cycles and you learn a lot more overall than you would if you did one big playtest at the end of development with a thousand players. You're not getting the same value from that process. So many small playtests are tremendously important. So I want to leave you with some tools to help. Now, playtesting, and I appreciate that it is 
can be quite a formal process if you go through it with a user researcher and, and spend all this time on it. It doesn't really doesn't have to be a big deal. The essence of what I've tried to cover is, first of all, just think about what you want to learn from the playtest. Make a sensible decision about what's the most pragmatic way of gathering that data. Go and thinking about the data you've gathered and understanding what does it mean, and then working out what am I going to do as a result of this um, requires a little bit of thought, but it doesn't have to be a big deal. You, at a push, you can do, fit this into fit the whole process into a single day, full day work. And if it is a single day, that can be done regularly. You could do it every, every month or every couple of months and just run many small iterative tests has a huge amount of value. Obviously, playtesting does have a lot more depth than this, and it is a professional role, as I've talked about. There might be situations where you do want to do more complicated playtests, like follow an individual player over a month to see why retention drops off, or get 80 people to play at the same time for a big coordinated multiplayer playtest. If you're interested in, in this as a profession, as I mentioned at the beginning, I wrote a book about how to do it as a full-time job, and, and there's a great games user research community there's a link for gamesuserresearch.com where you can find out more about doing this as a full-time role. But for everyone else, and, and the mission I've been trying to do over the last couple of years is trying to make this easier for, for teams who don't have the time or the budget to do it as a full-time thing. I, I, earlier this year, I launched a playtest kit, which aims to do that for, the, for a typical game developer. Just makes the process simple, makes it repeatable, gives you all the templates you need to, to do that. Um, some lovely game developers gave some lovely feedback and, and said nice things about it, about it's a great way to organize playtests, it's practical, it's it's practical for the smallest indie developer, it's approachable, it's developer friendly, it gives you everything you need to run and analyze playtests. Um, if you are interested on the website playtestkit.com, um, there is the kit. There's also near the bottom just free templates for defining your players, gathering players for your, for your playtest, a checklist for how to actually run the playtests. All those things I mentioned earlier are, are free at the bottom of the page. If you are convinced so and you think this sounds useful, there's also a code here um, exclusive to this event that you can use to get $50 off the playtest kit. Regardless of, uh, the playtest kit is really helpful, but regardless of whether you sell it to you or not, I'm really enthusiastic about playtesting. If you ever have any playtest questions, Really happy to talk about it at length. I'm very active on Twitter, talking about playtesting. Drop me an email and I'll be set up a chat with you. If you'd like to learn about playtesting, I'm really happy to talk about it. For today, I think that's everything though. Um, thank you very much for your time. I, I think we might have some questions, maybe Dan will be able to help with the questions. And if, if questions occur to you after, we we'll just get in touch, really happy to chat. Thank oh, you. I most definitely have some questions right here. Uh, and I had some that, okay, look at this. Look at this. Okay, we're going to pull them up in chronological order. Here we go. Mr. Eric Montoya says, would my local game shop and the local community college that has an esports team be a good place to get quality playtesters? I think that's a great question. And what I like about both of those is, hey, that they're not developers. They are people who, who play games, and that might be very relevant to you. My short answer would be, Yes, you might also want to do that screening step of come up with some questions to check they play the right type of games. But as long as you're doing that screening, yeah, fantastic ideas of where to look. Thank you, Eric. Okay, so I know that you did answer this, mm -hmm. but 
Should age be a factor in who's playtesting? I know you send out the screener. That's what you called it, right? The screener beforehand. Because you know you know your demographic. Like, But you've got to also figure out the demographic for your game in the first place, right? Yeah, I, I think demographics can be a, a trap. I, I think it's very relevant if it's a kid's game, if it's aimed at a specific age group. But I, I think it can be really easy to fall into stereotypes with, with the broader game development community. And so my advice is... is I would avoid, unless you are making a kids game, using it as how you define your players, um, instead focusing on, on genuine behavior, like do they play this game, this type of game, gets you a lot further to defining the right type of player. Right, right. And that makes sense because, for example, like I didn't play Fortnite for a long time, right? But then I just recently started playing Fortnite again because I never liked building. So, and, and at the end, when it comes to the end, it's like, I didn't want to build, so I would just die. So I stopped, but they came out with a no build mode. So at my house, we have a multiple number of age groups that play it. There's a 10 year old, there's a 29 year old, there's a 39 year old, and there's me who is 33, which is not really my age, but there's definitely a gap between all, all four of those, right? You know, I'm in my fifties. Okay. Mm. I'm in my fifties. Right. But I play Fortnite. Right. So there's, so it's, you know, there, unless, like you said, unless it's a kid's mm. game, but yeah, there's sometimes just a gap. And it's also like some people like certain games. Some people don't. And gamer demographics is like people that are 30, 40, 50 play video games. I grew up, you know, I see so many uh, content creators say I grew up playing video games and I'm like, hmm, did you, you're 20 something. And yeah, you did. But I probably have another 20 years on you playing video games. You know what I mean? So mm. I think you're exactly right. People have assumptions and stereotypes and often that doesn't stand up in, in your life. Right. And I am like the least, I'm a biker, right? I ride Harley Davidson's. I hang out with a bunch of biker dudes and people, oh, you play video games? Well, yeah. And I have, I know some mean biker dudes that play like little simple, like <laughs> cutesy looking games on their phone all day long. Right. So it's really about finding that. So here we go. Not really a question, but a tip. I do feel like asking your playtesters to think out loud while playing does give a lot of new information you would have missed. I like that. I, I think that's a really good observation. And yeah, think aloud. That idea of getting players to talk out loud does reveal a bunch of what's going on in their head. It's really important. One, right. um, one, one tip on, on think aloud is I have noticed it does impact players' ability to play. So if it's a really difficulty-based game and very skill-based, you might be artificially lowering their skill by getting them to do two things at once. Mm -hmm. But that can be worth it. Um, a, if your game isn't hugely skill-based or time-sensitive, and B, you get a huge amount of rich data uh, as covered. So I think that's a very good point. And that is also another reason like working with content creators, right? Because content creators are used to sitting there and sniping somebody and talking the whole time as well. Mm -hmm. So because they can process two things at a time. Okay, here we go. Uh, from Joker of Aces, which role on an indie game, indie game team, indie game dev team seems to be the best for being in charge of playtesting? Would the HR marketing role lean in charge of playtests, considering game designers, devs might have high bias? I think that's a good point, something I hadn't considered. Um, I like the idea of game designers and devs being the ones doing it because you're the one who's actually going to have to action it at the end it gives you a deeper understanding of what the problems are because you've spent that time with players, understanding players, rather than just having someone tell you that, you might not have the same depth of understanding. Totally appreciate the point about bias. 
And so I guess going into it with the right mindset, being ready to be proved wrong and confident about enough about your objectives that it's okay if I'm wrong, that's actually good for the game if I'm wrong to learn that now, it is a mindset change. Mm -hmm. But I think designers and devs might be the best place to do that. And there's two things though, like with uh, like when you're making a game, you're so far inside of it. Like mm. you, sometimes you don't even know if it's good or bad or fun or entertaining or any, you just know that it does this thing, right? And mm. also I've done some first plays with mm. devs there. And one thing, if you want to have play testers and you're supervising them and you're a dev, you got to not talk, right? You got to not say, oh, well, you need to go over there. Or, oh, you need to go because you can't find out what's wrong if you're telling the person which way to go and what to do, right? If they're if they can't figure it out. So you kind of got to keep your mouth shut and let mm -hmm. them do it, right? Yeah, definitely need the right mindset. Right. Not to be mean to devs, Bob, but keep your mouth shut. <laughs> All right, here we go. It's another one. Uh, how would you take into account when the same play tester tests your game again? They're essentially spoiled as the game isn't completely new to them anymore. That that's a great point and, and really important. So yes, you can't bring that same person to do you the first time user experience again, you can't show them the tutorial a second time because they know the answer already. There are some things you might want to learn where it's okay that they've seen stuff before. If you're looking at something completely different or you're looking at um, a different objective from the game, you can bring the same people back. But when, when you've got that mailing list, tracking who's taking part in, in each one and making yeah. sure you are not putting the wrong people with the wrong objectives is also important to think about. I think that's a really valuable point. Right. So difficult to stay quiet when people play you made. All right, we've got a couple more questions. Uh, I know you guys want to dump them. Um, okay, here we go. Would it be better to have playtesting before or after anime AI is implemented, seeing how anime AI may be based off of player activity? Uh, my, my simple answer is, hey, both. There's going to be some things that you want to learn before you've got AI in or some things you can learn before AI is in. So let's do that early because our attention's on it and we've got the chance to do it. And then there's some things you can only learn after the enemy AI is in, like difficulty. Um, so the idea of doing small, regular play tests that you can do before and after, I, I think, is, is the answer here. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Steve. I know that there's a couple more questions, and I know other people have some burning questions. So, Steve, if you would hang out in the Discord, we got to go. We got somebody else. Like, I mean, we're squeezing in on their time. So if you want to hang out in the Discord, if you go to discord.gg slash business, and then you go over to the podcast, podcast questions channel, which is down quite a bit, and go in there. And Steve, if you would hang out there for a little bit, I would really appreciate it. That would be awesome. So what do we got next? Who do we got next here? We got somebody. Let's see. We've got, I'm going to not be able to pronounce that name very well. Minhas. Minhas from How to Assemble an Indie Team. And that is coming up right next. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.